Hello and welcome to episode 370 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. That's Ben Olson. Together, we're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. This show is going to air on Monday, October 3rd. Next registration deadline, uh, Thursday, December 1st. You have to decide whether you want to register for the January 2023 LSAT. You can get all those dates by going to lsat.link forward slash dates. Come to my free classes uh, Thursday, October 6th. I'm going to be teaching a class called What It Takes to Score 170. You just need to go to lsat.link forward slash Nathan. Today on the show, we had an excellent interview uh, at the top of the show with my old friend and Ben's new friend, Allison Monahan. Um, Allison is a Columbia law grad. She's written for Ms. JD for forever, founder of Law School Toolbox, Girl's Guide to Law School, million different projects, um, Law School Toolbox podcast. She's got like about the same number of episodes as us, uh, mm-hmm. Ben, 300 something, <laughs> lots of episodes of the Law School Toolbox podcast with Lee Burgess. And uh, we're going to lead off with an interview with Allison. So I guess let's just uh, jump right in, huh, Ben? Yep, let's do it. Uh, Allison, you were on the Thinking LSAT podcast way back when with just me. Is that correct? I think that is correct, but that has definitely been a while and I couldn't tell you really what we talked about. Possibly more than once, uh, but it was, Maybe. it's going to be on an episode, a, episodes way right. back there, like in the first 100. Allison they're probably are, really bad before we knew what we were doing. <laughs> oh God, they're not, still I mean, bad. me, not you. Imagine how bad they are now, how bad they were then. <laughs> I know. Anyway, so let's see, Allison, we were living in San Francisco at the same time, and I had my little beginning LSAT prep business. Ben and I had started the Thinking LSAT podcast. We had you on the show. Back then, you were doing lots of things that you're definitely still doing now. You're the founder of Girl's Guide to Law School. That was, wow, almost 12 years ago now. Crazy. You you and Lee uh, co-founded Law School Toolbox. That's now 10 and a half years ago, or almost 11 years ago. Uh, Trebuchet was nine years ago. Oh, you've been with Ms. JD writing for forever before that. Um, that's all just from your LinkedIn. You were doing all that stuff then. So maybe you just haven't updated your LinkedIn in a while. That is entirely possible. I can't say that I'm super <laughs> active on LinkedIn. I was like, Trebuchet, haven't heard that for a while. Yeah. Um, I think that got rebranded like several times. Um, yeah. Okay. If anyone cr- wants career help, they can go to our career dicta website now. Um, yeah. So I do the, basically at this point, the law school toolbox, the bar exam toolbox, and then we have a little bit of career stuff on the career dicta. But yeah, I mean, we have two podcasts now, which is crazy. Um, you were actually one of the impetuses for starting the first one and it's been great. And you know, millions of downloads, totally crazy how many man hours people listen to these things. But um, yeah, so thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I mean, it it it's just like any idiot can do it, right? I mean, that's like the secret behind all these things is that you just like, <laughs> you just do it. And then if people like it, then you keep doing it and then right. it grows. I mean, it's not right. Exactly. Like I said, we've, we, you know, certain things rebranded multiple times didn't really work. Other things like, Hey, people like to listen to me talk about law school. Who knew? <laughs> thousand percent. We were <laughs> laughing. We were laughing before we started recording. We were laughing about when Allison and Lee tried to, uh, teach me the bar exam. Like we were going to do a podcast together, the three of us where they coached me on the bar. Cause I never took the California bar. And they had me do like one sample essay or something. And we tried to sit down and record one episode. 
And it became immediately apparent that I knew nothing and actually had no interest in learning any of the stuff. And so we just completely aborted. It was a very yeah. silly. <laughs> if anybody's interested. Like it, it, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it seemed like a good enough idea until we actually stopped, like put one toe in it. And we're like, yeah, this is definitely not a good idea for anyone. And Nathan is going to be really bored with this. Oh, my God. I was so <laughs> bored immediately. I couldn't do any of it. And it, I, I only bring that up because. You know, we're all three entrepreneurs here. And if anybody is interested in entrepreneurship at all, my number one tip for entrepreneurship is that you just have to do shit and then be willing to let it fail and then walk away from it and then try something else. Like I, I People spend so long thinking about their ideas and they never just actually implement like, OK, let's do the shittiest version of this that we can possibly do and let's see what we got. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's where my podcast came from. That's where your podcast came from. That's where all really? of our shit came from, really, is just like, OK, let's fire, then aim, you know, like, see, see what we got. Well, and I feel like it's with that with a lot of students, too. I don't know if you see this with your LSAT students, but for us, you know, sometimes people come in and they're like, well, I need the, I need the exact roadmap that's going to work for me. And I'm like, I don't know what's going to work for you. Here are like five things you could try and see which one works best. Maybe get started. I don't know. Yeah, Ben, we have the exact same thing with LSAT students, yeah? We do. I mean, people, six months out from their test, they want a daily schedule that's set out. And it's, it's how how long is it going to take you to actually learn those ideas? I don't know. Why don't you just do a question and learn right. from that? And then, we'll, and then we'll talk, right? Because things will change. Uh, ben, it's a side thing, but, um, you know, We've been investigating maybe an SAT business, and hmm. we started yesterday looking at Khan Academy, or I was looking at Khan Academy for SAT, and the very first thing that Khan has you do is, what's your test date? And then it works backward from your test date to build a study plan. And that, to me, is the worst possible way they could do it, because like what's a, a so OK, a freshman in high school looks at that and goes test date. I don't have a test date. OK, so this isn't for me or us, you know, sophomore in high school would do potentially the same thing. Like, well, I don't have a date. Well, OK, so maybe I shouldn't be prepping. And then it's like, OK, so you're a junior now or a senior and you are going to take the SAT. Oh, you're taking the SAT in uh, six weeks. OK, here's your six week schedule for the SAT. And it's like. Yeah, but that might be not nearly enough time to actually get prepped. It's just a totally backward way of of doing things. I guess it's. Did they ask for a goal score? I, I didn't even click through it far enough to know if oh, they were going to okay. ask me for a goal score. It, it, that probably was the next thing, though. Yeah, because that's what they do for uh, LSAT. Khan yeah. Academy is like, when are you taking the test and what score do you want to get? And what's your what are you at right now? Oh, you need to improve by 49 points in 10 days. OK, here's how you do <laughs> well, it. <laughs> well, they, I had a student who said he wanted to go up, I don't know, 32 points based on his goal score or something like that. And it was like, OK, well, then you need to go up this many points a week. And it's like, no problem. good, good luck, you know, <laughs> accomplishing that 12 <laughs> points a week. OK, good. Do it. That's just not how things work these days. Um, OK, so, Allison, what have you been up to? We we wanted you on the show just to catch up, but we also wanted to hear about what's new in the world of uh, bar exam, law schools generally, really anything you want to talk about. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the pandemic has definitely been interesting and a little crazy, not bad necessarily for our business per se, but definitely, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the same things, just all of these tests are just like 
now we're online, now we're not, now we're doing this, now we're, now we're on this date, now we're not. Like the bar, for example, shifted like, you know, six months or something in the beginning. So all, all of that's kind of stabilizing a little bit, I think. So yeah, Tell I mean, us you know, actually, we're, I'm actually really curious about that. So California bar went online in oh, when? Yeah. So How long? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've like honestly blocked a lot of this out. So yeah, <laughs> pandemic, like March, 2020. So yeah, so we're supposed to be doing the July 2020 bar, right? So everyone's like getting ready for that. So yeah, that went online. Um, I think they went online. It depends on the UBE or California states did it differently, but they did probably like three or four bar exams fully online with all and of And then the, they came you know, back? Yeah. So now they're all pretty much all back in person, I think. Wow. Um, with no online yeah, so, option? No, no online option. Um, I think the last exam across the country was fully in person. Um, so yeah, they've kind of got just gone back to like, oh, now we're all going to sit a thousand people in a room and you know hope, hope nobody gets sick or anything or is distracted by having a thousand people in the room with them. Why do why do they want it in line on like in person? Honestly, like, as opposed I think to it, online, it's their security stuff. They're just like freaked out about. I mean, to be honest, like. I'm sure people were cheating on the online version. Um, I mean, they're probably cheating on the in-person version in some ways too, but I don't know. It's one of those things like they didn't really do like the greatest job necessarily of like, mm. you know, scanning people's rooms and things. So it's pretty easy. You're like, oh yeah, you could just like post your notes right behind your computer and nobody's ever going to look at them. Yeah, I don't so know how many people did that, but you know, in a place where you have to memorize a bunch of stuff, it's definitely tempting. I would have done that. I would have cheated I mean, easily. I didn't want to do the work. <laughs> I would have done it the easiest yeah. possible way. So if the easiest possible way was to just have notes, then I would have done it. Um, it you know, LSAT, you can't possibly right. have yeah. notes. There's nothing. No. So the LSAT and you can't like it's, Google the answer either, right? Right. It's testing aptitude versus the bar exam is testing some combination of aptitude plus whatever you've memorized. And so... There is a pretty strong temptation, I think, there to, you know. Yeah, maybe not aptitude. Maybe maybe we just say skills instead yeah. because the, it's certainly learned aptitude, I think, which I would oh, say I don't think it's skill. like talent or anything like right. that. I think okay, skills good. is like the better word, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the bar exam is memorize a whole bunch of stuff and the LSAT yeah. is zero. Cool. Yeah. All right. So other st so everything is now fully back in person for the bar exams. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, that impacted law schools as well, because obviously they went virtual. And so then they were giving virtual exams, the ones that hadn't done it. So that was kind of interesting. So you used to have this kind of split between like the places that always gave open book exams, you know, the Columbia, the Harvards, the Yales of the world, and then the places that didn't, and then the places that didn't were. And so there, I think it's kind of a little bit more fluid in terms of, are they going back to just the classic, like closed book, memorize everything exam or not? Um so, you know, there's been a lot of flux in terms of like how people are doing school and how they're doing you know, can how they're interacting with their professors. And in some ways, I think the schools is actually a better opportunity because they did see that like, oh, you know, they're actually, yeah, there are benefits to being in class in person, but there are also benefits to not being in class in person for people who have like kids at home or like emergency situations. Like, you know, why can't you just zoom in if you're going to have to be like someplace else that day? So I think some places are becoming more flexible. Has anything moved on the bar privilege uh, campaign? There's a lot of movement right now in kind of the whole bar space. I'm actually going to a webinar, I think later this week by the people who do the UBE talking about their, they're calling it like the next gen bar exam. Um, so they are making some changes. I think they're probably almost certainly going to drop multiple choice. Um, and 
it's unclear like how much is going to have to be sort of memorization versus more like skills, you know, reading something and doing something type stuff. Um, but it's definitely changing. I mean, California is doing a lot of they're having a lot of meetings um, on what they want to do in terms of like diploma privilege and things like that. And also, are they going to redo their bar exam? You know, are they ultimately going to shift to the UBE when it moves to this new format? I mean, that seems to be the writing on the wall. I can't imagine that they're going to keep doing their own indefinitely. But you never know with California. Definitely a little weird out here. Um, but yeah, so there's actually, I think 2026, maybe. I'm not 100% sure. It's kind of when the UBE is targeting like their new exam. So that's coming up pretty quickly, actually. California lowered its cut score a while back. They did, there? but yeah, they got they lowered the cut score. They didn't necessarily increase the pass rate. Um, interesting. So, you know, California, always a little strange. <laughs> interesting. What else is new in the world of uh how's it how's it going with um law school tutoring? It's good, you know. I mean, we do what we do. People come to us and they're like, Yeah, I'm having trouble like keeping up with my reading and figuring out what's going to be on the test and how to write it down. I'm like, great, we can help you with that. (laughs) This is kind of like what we do. So it's always interesting, like the beginning of the year, because you get, you know, you get your like, really, we have a start law school write program in the summer. And so some like really, you know, on it, people sign up for that. And then starting in like September and moving into October, we get kind of the freaked out one L's who are like, oh my gosh, like, what am I doing? I've been in this program for like four to six weeks and now I'm totally drowning and I had a midterm and I've never failed anything in my life. And suddenly my teacher is telling me like, you know, I'm at the bottom of the class. So this is, you know, we we start getting phone calls at that point. Quick question for you, Allison. Well, I don't know if it's actually quick, but I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and it says the girl's guide to law school exists for one reason, to help you get what you want from your law school experience. And I was just curious, what do people want to get from their law school experience? I assume that most people just wanted the best grades they can get and, you know, try to get a job. What, <laughs> the what, 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 expand my understanding of what people want to get out of the law school experience. Well, I think that's actually a really interesting question because I think people do often go into it And depending on the school they're going into, they kind of go into with like a different default option. So like I went to Columbia. As soon as you go, you know, you set foot on campus and suddenly they're like, awesome. We have all these amazing like big law firms you can talk to. They're going to come to campus. Like they're going to hire you. This is going to be so great. You're going to love it. And everyone's kind of like, oh, all right. Well, you know, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll consider that option. Um, But a lot of people didn't come in kind of expecting that they were going to do that. So I think that's kind of what sort of the point is, is like most of the people, I mean, if you look at the statistics on this, you know, we know most lawyers are not super happy a lot of the time. Um, but if you look at the data, a lot of people are happier. Actually, the people who kind of stepped off maybe that default path of just like, oh, I'm going to be on this like conveyor belt that's going to take me into this large law firm and they're going to pay me a lot of money and I'm going to work all the time and it's going to be great. I mean, most people don't like that job. Let's be honest. In fact, I just recorded a podcast with someone on our team about why big law might not be for you. And it was a fun podcast <laughs> for us anyway. <laughs> um, Say a little bit. Why? Why? Who is the type of person who you think big law is not for them? Well, I mean, I think it's an open question. Who it really is for is probably my response to that. Um, I, You know, I think 
I don't have a problem, you know, whatever, people should go do what they want to do, but I think they should just understand what they're getting into. And the reality is, you know, the structure of the way the large law firm is set up and the way that people are paid contributes to certain things that most people do not end up enjoying as a lifestyle. So, you know, if you're getting paid a salary and the partner's making money based on how many hours you work, you know, you don't have to be that smart to kind of figure out how this is going to end up. Like you're going to be working basically all the time. They own your time. Like somebody can call you at three in the morning and tell you to cancel your vacation and go to work. Shockingly, most people don't really like that over the long term. (laughs) Um, You know, so it's kind of stuff like that where it's like, just be aware of what you're getting into and kind of what you're signing up for and have an exit strategy. So in terms of like the experience, going back to your original question, you know, I think it's worth thinking about how am I going to position myself for like that next job that maybe is what I think I actually want to do? Or like, what is this about for me? You know, I had a roommate who didn't care at all about grades because she was like very public interest focused and she literally stopped looking at them, like, which is shocking to people, but <laughs> she had someone else check her transcript basically to make sure every semester she was going to graduate. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's ni- that's a nice luxury if if you can get it. No, but, you know, she worked really hard. She just worked really hard in different ways. You know, she was very committed to, like, the work that she was doing yeah, and people yeah, she yeah. was meeting and all those kind of things, not, like, what grade she got in some random class that she didn't really care about. Which, unfortunately, is what it seemed like the majority of people were thinking about during law school, at least yeah, in my experience. I mean, yeah, and there's a reason people end up, like, being pretty unhappy in law school, too. And I think part of it is, like... I don't know. I think a lot of people, I don't know if you guys have kind of seen this with your students, they they may come in with a slightly unrealistic idea of what they're signing up for. You know, and I laugh now, like thinking back to orientation and, you know, everyone's like, oh yeah, like, you know, what kind of law are you interested in? I think I said I was going to do like constitutional law or whatever. I'm like, (laughs) it's like, what does that even mean? You know, (laughs) like I had no idea what that meant. (laughs) Yeah. I think I was like, oh, maybe intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to well, be me. I'm going to do intellectual yeah, property. Well, see, weirdly, like I did end up doing that, <laughs> but that's because I had been a programmer beforehand, but that thought right. never occurred to me. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be an appellate litigator and do con law. You know? yeah. <laughs> like how many people do that in the country? Like maybe a few hundred. Um, there's this podcast. We mentioned it a couple episodes ago, Ben, the 5-4 podcast. Um, then they they do that one like kind of annual beginning of the year. Here's what you're getting into if you go to law school episode. I can't remember the exact name of it, but um, check out the 5-4 podcast and look at the, the, the one about going to law school. But that was one of their complaints was that law school is so structured, especially in the 1L year. It's so... I guess the firms are what makes it this way, but it's so structured toward big law in the first year that many people, according to them on the podcast anyway, it just it steer like you were saying, Allison, it just steers people who had never thought about big law down these big law paths because, hey, OCI is going to be here, you know, first semester next year. And we got to get your 1L grade so that you can. Uh, how, how are you? Are you doing OCI? Yeah. And then it's just so focused on on that, that it. Um, yeah, that law school actually just makes people go that route, not really intentionally, but that's the effect of it. Well, I think the other thing is it's so focused on like litigation type of classes and skills that, you know, ha- you know, even when you go into a firm, they're like, do you want to do litigation or corporate? And you're like, I don't even know what corporate is. What does that even mean? So you don't do any of that type of stuff in the typical first year. And that's a huge universe of like people who actually practice law. 
probably, I would say even, I mean, I would guess litigator, actual litigators are probably a subset, less than half of like the overall attorneys. Um, so there's this whole universe of stuff that people might be interested in or, you know, good at or whatever, more suited for that just doesn't even get touched. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> appellate litigation is like all <laughs> you talk about in law school. Go ahead, Ben. Well, it's funny because when you mention uh, constitutional law and appellate litigation, I, I think of my one friend who I was talking to and he 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 works at Sidley Austin and he does Supreme Court cases and so forth. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that a lot of people aspire to. But what surprised me when I talked to him is uh, how I don't know if he's burned out or <laughs> it just wasn't the right fit for him, but he talks about how every time he gets a new case, he feels like he's le learning a whole new area of law because appellate, he's an appellate litigator, which means he specializes in that and not necessarily ERISA or whatever. And so there's this brain drain. He's just like, oh, okay, like, okay, let's go learn this area. And you'd think that that would be, I don't know, exciting or interesting, but he seems done. He sounds like a little burned out. I mean, I didn't think <laughs> yeah. that was legitimately like one of the more interesting things about practice being a litigator was you did get dropped into these things. And it, I mean, it's really hard, but I thought it was interesting, mm -hmm. you know? So they're like, all right, you're like in this new universe, like figure yeah. it out, become like a world leading expert. It's actually funny. I have a rental unit in San Francisco and I was getting a new tenant recently. And one of the guys who applied was a lawyer and I was showing him the closet system that's like, I was like, oh, you know, it's from the container store. It's an alpha system. You can reconfigure it. And he just started laughing. And I'm like, what? He's like, I literally just did a patent case on this. I'm like, oh, so you know more <laughs> about this fucking closet system than like anyone on the planet right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're a professional student, right? That That's yeah. one of the markers for sure. I think of someone who is bound for litigation or could be successful in litigation is that they... They want to be a professional student. Like, yeah. give me the board, the big complicated board game that we're just opening up for the first time ever. I want the book because I want to read the instruction manual and I want to learn all the rules of this whole system. That's the people I think that do well. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I like doing IP stuff, actually. Like, I was a patent litigator and. Um, you know, basically my job a lot of the time was like, oh, like, let's go find some prior art for this like internet patent. So I would basically like work with our expert and I would just spend my days on like the way back machine looking for some random thing that, you know, we could present as evidence. And I was like, this is pretty fun. Like, I mean, I just hated the lifestyle part of it. I didn't hate the work necessarily. Yeah. Talk a little bit since I hadn't, I didn't know that you had gotten to uh, career dicta. Do you want to talk about career dicta a little bit? What are you guys doing over there? Yeah. So there, I mean, you know, honestly, this is kind of an, uh, sort of an attempt to help people figure out some of the things we've been talking about. I mean, A, some of it's practical, like, okay, you are doing OCI, like, you know, is your resume okay? Like, where are you applying? Like, let's do some mock interviews, that type of thing. But we can also help people sort of more generally who just want to sort of explore options and like talk about, you know, okay, if this doesn't work out, like, what am I going to do next? You know, just kind of having somebody there essentially for like coaching accountability. Um, I think people are finding it helpful and they're getting good results. So that is always exciting. And that's, you're, you're working with law students there trying typically, to typically, or like recent grads, but typically it's people in law school kind of okay. trying to figure out summer jobs, um, you know, permanent positions, that kind of thing. 
changes in a uh, job market from your perspective? Where are we, well, where are we at? We where are we going? Actually, yeah. Interestingly enough, we just did a podcast on this that I think came out this week. Um, so yeah, I think we're at a weird point, right? Like I think the economy overall is at a weird point. I don't think anyone really knows exactly where we're going. Um, I think at least like big firm hiring is definitely slowing down. Um, it's definitely doesn't seem to be, you know, the kind of 2008, like blow up disaster. We're like cutting all of our summer classes and firing everyone like that's not happening. But I definitely think we're shifting away into people being more selective. Um, you know, students may be having to hustle a little more, work those connections, like maybe not be quite so picky um, about what they're asking for and just kind of go with the flow a bit. Your let's see what episode was that? That was might have actually just come out yesterday. Oh, okay. Sure. Maybe it's in the podcast feed, but not yet on your. I don't know. It might be coming up next week. I honestly don't know. Someone, someone oh, mentioned okay. it to you me this morning. It. They're like, "It's a great time to be like releasing this," and I thought it came out this week, but maybe it's next week. So stay tuned. I don't know when you guys are releasing this, but by then it'll probably be out if yeah, it's not yeah, already. Yeah. This will be out in a week, and uh, and this is we're all talking about the Law School Toolbox podcast. Is that right? You put everything on that mm -hmm. channel now. Uh, yeah, we actually have two. So we have the Law School Toolbox, which was our original one. Um, I think we're up around three hundred plus episodes there, yeah. and then we have. Then we have the bar exam toolbox, which started later um, and also proving like pretty popular with people studying for the bar. That one, we've definitely focused a little more on substantive material. So and actually, we've moved some of that to the law school side as well because it was popular. But we'll do these little like listen and learn episodes where we take a very specific piece of law, kind of explain it to people and then apply it a few times. And so those have been, you know, people seem to find those really helpful. Those are shorter episodes. Yeah, they're kind of in like 20-ish minutes typically. I mean, mm -hmm. unless one of the people, unless one of our tutors who are writing them really gets going, but we try to keep them a little shorter. I see. Cool. I'm I'm just curious a little more about this career dicta. When people come to you, what are they typically struggling with? Is it just that they they know what they want, but they can't figure out how to get there, or they're not even sure what to apply, you know, what kind of jobs to seek or I think are, it's both. Um you know, sometimes people are really just like, okay, I'm doing OCI. I'm not happy with my resume. I'm not happy with like the support I'm getting from my school. I want an outside eye. And then some people are more, I mean, we talk to people who are just totally all over the place. So like, oh, I'm thinking about doing this area of law or this other area that's completely unrelated or possibly this other totally unrelated area as well. And we're like, all right, so let's like talk about what that might look like, you know, how you could have these the different paths or whatever, but, you know, is one of them preferable? Like, you know, is one of them you need to start sooner? You know, how are you staging this sort of thing? And then a lot of it, I think, is just helping people figure out kind of what their resources are, um, you know, based on their personal profile. You know, maybe their grades aren't as good as they could be, but they have other things going for them. You know, that kind of thing of having that kind of outside perspective of like, let's look at the whole picture, kind of figure out what's your story, like, how are you going to position this? Um, and then frankly, like helping them follow through is often big as well. Um, so I think it's pretty overwhelming, you know, like law school is overwhelming, like finding a job is overwhelming and just having somebody kind of there to be like, all right, you know, you said you were going to send out four applications this week. It doesn't look like you've done that. Like, where are they? Like, what's your plan? Why is this not happening? Do you need a therapist? Like what, what's <laughs> happening here? <laughs> okay. Interesting. So would you say... Like maybe the your your number one piece of or your most common piece of advice for some of these folks or law students looking for jobs is just 
execution or making I think that's it happen? so much of it. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of those things that's like everybody knows they need to take care of, but nobody really wants to deal with. And so people mm. just kind of put it off and put it off. And then it becomes like a bigger and bigger and bigger problem because they haven't done anything. And so now they're like behind the eight ball and then they're like, oh, my gosh. Like, so our advice is always like, look, you know, this is something that you can do over time consistently and mm. actually block out time in your schedule, like literally every week, you know, okay, this is the hour every week that I'm going to be like looking for my job or whatever. And like, so, you know, obviously if you're like in the midst of it, you've got to do more than that, <laughs> but just something that's like, you know, even 30 minutes, like, okay, 30 minutes a week. Like, am I going to reach out to someone? Am I going to like plan to go to an event? Am I going to look at like something I need to sign up for? Like, I mean, I'm sure you see this with your students studying too. Like yeah. so much of this is just showing up consistently and like doing the work versus like, oh my God, I haven't done anything. Now I'm super stressed out and it's become this whole thing about how stressed out I am and I'm still not doing anything. So I think like yeah. kind of talking people down from that of like, all right, I hear that you're like worried about this, but let's like pick one thing you can do this week and like kind of get that momentum started can be really helpful. Breaking it down into the next step. And then do exactly. that step. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, it's just kind of like know, life. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like you do that repeatedly. And then, you know, eventually it's like, oh, I went and like walked around the block today. And then I did it the next day and the next yeah. day. And then maybe I decide I'm going to start running a little bit or like whatever. It's not like I'm going to train for a marathon. And I think sometimes people who go to law school have that mentality of like, if I'm not training for the marathon, it's not worth doing. So I it's have not to be worth training. It. For, yeah. Yeah. I have to be training for the marathon or doing nothing. It's like, there's a lot of space in between there. Any news with, uh, you made a class called Start Law School Right, and that's still on the Law School Toolbox website. Has Is that an active thing? Is that being updated? Yeah. or? Yeah. So basically with that, it's kind of a hybrid model. So people come and we walk them through sort of the whole process of being a law student over the summer. So we work with like a single case. Um, they read it, they brief it, they outline, you know, the sort of law that's covered, and then they actually do an exam. And so they work throughout the course with our tutors. Um, so they'll submit an assignment and get feedback on it. Um, and so I think it's good for people, you know, just to kind of have that sense of like, what are you aiming for at the end? Um, like, what does a law school exam look like and feel like? And what are they testing? Because, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in just like the day to day, of like going to class and like, it's all about these cases I'm reading and I have to memorize like what each case is. And like, that's not really what we're doing. Um, so I think having that experience beforehand can just give people a little bit of perspective and kind of, you know, take that step back of like, why are we reading this? Like, how am I going to use this? Um, and actually, you know, hopefully be thinking about that and working towards the same thing, like working towards that throughout the semester instead of it's Thanksgiving. And now I'm like, oh my God, I have to start outlining and like, oh my God, like, it's like, that's just a lot. I mean, I did that. I admit it, but it was a lot of stress. It's just the hardest way to do it. It's the most stressful way yeah. to do it. And it seems like that's how people have learned to study maybe in high school and in college. And, you know, we got Khan Academy out there apparently training people to think this way, like, yeah. you know, just kind of wait until you can't put it off and then just like, try to do it all at, all in one big last minute push. And um, right. we have found certainly in LSAT world, you know, when we started, Allison, when we started doing LSAT prep, we thought that like, you know, you can improve by 10 points. Maybe, you know, like 10 points if you give it right. a good, a good effort. And that's coming from a, a an old school mindset where we taught 
10 week classes or 12 week mm. classes. You know, we had a start date and an end date and the end date was right before your test. And that's how LSAT prep was like, done. There you go. Good luck. <laughs> and when yeah. LSAT prep was done that way, it was like, oh, yeah, if we can get you a 10 point improvement, we feel awesome. Since we switched to doing it in, in a subscription way where people just kind of it's like you're signing up for your gym or you're signing up mm. for your yoga studio or whatever. And you're going to work on your, you know, LSAT fitness over a potentially long period of time and just kind of civilized, you know, do an hour a day with us. And since we've done that, we now see people improving on their LSAT by 20 points, 25 points. We had multiple 30 point improvements this year on a test that only has 60 points on the entire scale. <laughs> no, that's really <laughs> impressive. But it's interesting because... We actually saw a very similar thing when the first COVID bar exam was postponed. So they postponed it from July until October and the pass rates were so much higher. And people were like, what happened? I'm like, they had more time to study. They weren't doing like eight to yeah. 10 week crash course Barbary. Like, of course <laughs> they learned more. Like <laughs> this should not be shocking. I've, I've never thought of that either. Yeah. It's like, well, law school doesn't prepare you for the bar. Everybody no. does Barbary. Everybody does a crash course. It's literally six days a week <laughs> just scheduled right up or until seven. the actual test. Yeah, yeah seven and days like, a week. Sure. Start memorizing two weeks before the test. I'm like, are you joking? Like the volume? Like and, this is insanity. <laughs> and bar passage rates have been always low, right? I've always yeah, been shocking. thinking about it, like, Shock. oh, wow, California bar is really hard. Like the pass rate sometimes is like 45 percent. Like what's going on? And Oh, well, maybe we need to look at what bar prep has been doing for, yeah. uh, you know, so, all you know, we work with a lot of students who are like spreading stuff out more for whatever reason. You know, they're working, they're studying, they have family obligations. And like, you know, they're, everyone's like, oh, I'm so worried about burning out. I'm like, we're not going to give you so much to do every day that you burn out. That That's kind of the point. Like we have to balance this so that you're doing something over time and actually like internalizing it and thinking about it and learning it. But you're not trying to do 12 hour days, like seven days a week, because you can't learn that way anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Fitness is the paradigm to to think about. It just doesn't have to be 12 hour days aren't going to be the right thing to do. <laughs> That's no, not like your good. brain is not functioning at that point. Like, it's just not like there's no way that you can be functional, like studying just like your, that intensively. <laughs> your body would not be functioning yeah, if you totally. worked out for 12 hours. You'd be in a coma. Exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, I, don't know. I think I think this is a I don't know, maybe it's a shift that is happening, needs to happen. But, yeah, that's a very interesting like strategy shift for you guys and that you're seeing those results. Well, it just it's like seems like common sense. I mean, you guys are doing it and having great success. We're doing it and have the you know, like, that is so telling that, <laughs> oh, it's a natural experiment. Hey, these people had longer to study for the bar. Guess what? They did better on the bar. Hmm. I wonder. Shocking. And no, people were literally yeah. like, I don't understand what happened. Like how we're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> like they literally had like, what, four or five extra months? to like Well, you know, like the Barbies of the world, it's in their interest not to understand. It's in their interest to just go, what? No. Just do your 12 hour days. Just, just come back. Tell you. Yeah. Bar prep starts in May, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a fight we have with, because sometimes people come to us and they're like, I want to have support, like starting, you know, in May when I graduate. And I might be talking to them in like December, January. And we're like, well, you know, is there any way you could free up a little time in your schedule, like in your final semester of law school, like just a few hours a week? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, because that would really benefit you, you know, <laughs> like that's actually going to add up to a lot of time and make your life much easier later on. Yeah. 
Allison, I'm glad we had a chance to connect. I hope it won't be another seven years before you come back again on the Thinking Elsa <laughs> podcast. Well, just, you know, invite me back. I'll be here anytime. Love talking with you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, Allison Monahan. Boy, I don't even know how to describe it, Allison. What's the first thing that you would say if you were if you were wrapping up who you are? What would you say? Well, we used to say. I used to give a really bad response, like back in the day, where I was like, well, I used to be a large firm lawyer. Like, stop saying that. So then we started saying we were running a media empire, but I'm not sure that's entirely true anymore. But that's probably, you know, I mean, you know, basically, like, we help people. Like, we help them, like, do stuff that's hard, basically. <laughs> Law school and <laughs> the bar exam, primarily, yeah? Or do yeah, you have other, yeah. what's your other shit you're doing that you haven't even talked about? Oh, no, no. I mean, you know, professionally, law school, bar exam, you know, career stuff. That's what we do. Yeah. Cool. We basically rephrase it kind of like law students and like early legal career. What have you been doing for fun? Oh, gosh, nothing. Um, No, <laughs> no, I'm involved in a real estate thing. So I've uh, got I'm actually sitting in this house that has stuff everywhere and it's very complicated. So that's pretty much taking up all of my spare time these days that and driving back and forth between San Francisco and Tahoe, which is, you know, really fun to do like multiple times a week. <laughs> Oof, that's a lot. Yeah. But yeah, cool. thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. I'm going to go caulk a sink now. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy the caulking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Allison. We'll see you next time. Thanks. All yeah, right. Bye-bye. Hey, Ben, want to take a quick look at the uh, drilling accuracy leaderboard? I do. Yeah. This is a a little motivational tool that we have in the demon uh, to to maybe you look at it, maybe you don't. There's a little trophy when you go to the drilling page in the upper right hand corner. You click the trophy and you can see uh, who's in the demon drilling and what their accuracy on their drilling is. Right now, uh, Georgie is in number one, uh, the one, number one spot. He has drilled 36 questions today with 100 percent accuracy. He has a little picture there of himself. Uh, Pablo A is tied with Georgie. 36 questions, 100% accuracy. I don't know how many people are actually looking at that, but that's uh, that's motivating for some people, I think. Yeah. Hey, Ben, um, we both got around finally to watching that entire uh, Dean Z video, apparently. Yep. And I wrote some bullet points. I don't want to dwell on it because we talked about it during episode 369 uh, at the top of that show. So I just wanted to make sure that I was fact checking, you know, because we had been reading like a partial transcript. Um, I didn't sure. find anything that I wanted to correct. Did you from last episode? No, not necessarily. Not anything we haven't already said. OK, so there were a few things that were in there that stuck that just like jumped out at me. And I wanted to um, I wanted to, to mention them specifically. She said at one point during the podcast, the biggest percentage of uh, full ride scholarships that I can recall ever seeing is 15%. She was speaking for all law schools and said the biggest percentage she could ever recall seeing is 15%. And that means, I mean, she either misspoke there or she's just wildly misinformed because the 509 reports for many, many, many law schools have full ride scholarship percentages well north of 15%. I mean, I'm talking about 50% yeah. at some schools. And, uh, you know, maybe she's only speaking for the top 14 yeah. Her, her competitors, right? That's who she cares well, about. Yeah. She's also ignoring her real competitors just outside right. the top 14, yeah. right? Yeah. She's ignoring. Which is a very natural thing to do. You may, you may just look only to your, you know, the people at your shoulder, but <laughs> that might not be smart. Here in yeah. the top 14, I'm, oh, what are you guys doing? Cause I'm going to do what you guys are doing. And it's like, well, 
watch out for wash U in St. Yep. Louis and watch out or for Arizona. Yeah. Arizona and UCLA sometimes. And there are other schools out there that are giving generous full rides to, you know, half of their class. And okay. Anyway, just wanted to make that clear. Um, she, so the, here's a project, Ben, this is how Ben and I do our business, by the way, we like brainstorm business ideas while we do the podcast. Um, yep. she said that average indebtedness is something that the schools have to provide to the ABA every year, but it isn't published. Sorry, not ABA. Wait, did she say ABA? I can't remember if she said ABA or if she said US News. She said okay. that all the schools have to calculate average indebtedness. I have it in my notes as ABA, but maybe she said US News. But she says so this is <clears throat> she's giving alum? advice to applicants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And she's telling them. You can ask each individual school what the average indebtedness is at that school, and they will have that number. Wow. Okay. So if that's true, Ben, then I want the thinking LSAT, LSAT demon empire to put some resources behind that and get that number for, for every school. Every school. <laughs> Start at the top. Yep. Okay. So if we had a CEO, I would sell, tell the CEO, Hey, make that happen. <laughs> we don't, we don't have a CEO. Though. No, we, we do to, not. <laughs> we have to look around and co-founders wait for someone to... <laughs> and no managers. <laughs> um, we'll have to have a side discussion about how to do stuff like that because I have lots yeah. of ideas and things like that. I just want to pull the trigger on it. I want it to be done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like we can make a page that can provide that information so that, you know, you don't have to be asking, like, really, do we need thousands of applicants asking hundreds of schools? What's your average indebtedness? Or can we just like have a page that has all that information? Well, we, it seems like a great project and I'd like to know those numbers really quick. I want to clarify what that means. So they're looking at all their alum, I guess, and just taking their yeah, who knows? I'm. I was assuming that it's average indebtedness of the recent class that graduated. Because the number is going to go down, obviously, over time, right? So then the no, no, is it's going to be average indebtedness at graduation. Okay. That yeah. Snapshot at graduation. What's this class's average indebtedness? How much money do they owe once they walk <laughs> if, out the if door? There's any reason in the world that's going to be what it is. So. Okay. Anyway, we're going to do a project and we're going to make that happen. We'll have to talk after the show about how we're going to actually make that happen. Okay. <clears throat> I do want to say one more thing about this. Yes. We tried to get the fees for all the schools, right? Because the 509 reports have lots of problems. Yep. And we wanted to know if you get a full tuition scholarship, uh, how much are you going to actually still have to pay in fees? Because tuition and fees are two separate things, right? Yep. So a full tuition scholarship can be deceptive. Well, there are about 200 schools. And we've been trying to pin down those fee numbers. Kevin has worked on this project. Francesca has worked on this project. And now Jen is currently working on this project. I would say we're 90% there. But getting the information is difficult. There are bad numbers in the 509 reports. And then we will look at the website. We will then call the school. The people we talk to at the school are very unhelpful in a lot of cases or provide contradicting information. So this is going to be uh, an endeavor. If anybody has any contacts at the American Bar Association section for legal education, we would really love to know why those section 509 information reports are not accurate. Yep. I, you know, I, I 
my understanding is that the American Bar Association, when they, you know, are supposed to be vetting these schools and doing, you know, 509 is explicitly there as a as a consumer protection measure. Yeah. Well, what consumer is being protected when the data is just wrong? Being misled, really, right? Like you're you might not only not be protected, you might be guided in the wrong direction. Yeah. I mean, it's just that's bad. That's bad information is not going to be useful. So uh, anyway, OK, two more bullet points from Dean Z's video. Um, again, this is uh, Dean Zierfoss from University of Michigan Law School. She has a, a YouTube uh, show. Um, she said at one point, quote, if they just if they say they just won't have this discussion and by that she meant uh, scholarship negotiations. So they've already made you an offer, but you want more money. If a school says they just won't have this discussion, ask them if you can at least talk about what your concerns are and they should be able to give you some counseling. So this was Dean Z um, explicitly recommending to applicants that even if a school tells you that they do not negotiate scholarships, you should still try to negotiate your scholarship. It was clear to me. <laughs> she says there you, you need to give them information. There might be information that they are not aware of. And just saying I won't pay more. They need to know that. But what she meant was, hey, tell them something about your financial situation. They might be able to work with it. Mm -hmm. So I got a little bit of an insight there that it was like, you know, <clears throat> this is the time. She said specifically, if you're uh, separated from your parents, mm -hmm. make that clear. Now, I don't know if that has to be like legally emancipated, but, you know, you could say, no, listen, I'm 21 and I pay my own bills. My mom and dad are not part of my life. Yep. If you said that to a school, <laughs> you know, so <clears throat> don't phrase it to the school. I want to negotiate my scholarship. Don't probably don't ever say negotiation. Right. Yeah. But nonetheless, she was encouraging applicants to negotiate. Yep. Like if money yeah. is important to you, you need to be you need to make that clear to the school to give them a chance to give you more money. Yeah. Saying I have concerns. I want to talk about those concerns. Can we talk about them? It's a lot harder for the school to say no to that than to say no to, hey, I want to negotiate a better scholarship. Yeah. Can I at least talk about some concerns I have? Yeah. They, they can't say no, really. Well, what are they going to say? We can't hear your concerns. We can't talk to you. I mean, they're interested in getting you. That's why yes. you're even having this conversation in the first place. So. Yes. So you're going to talk to a sales negotiator when you have this conversation. You know, be aware that you're going to be talking to someone who's real savvy, right? Like, yeah, you're th this is the fox that you're talking to. Yeah. And so you need to, and they practice every day. You realize that, right? You're going oh, multiple, into this. They're getting off and they of just one phone got, call. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, but, but do, do have the conversation and, and let them know that the money is going to be a factor for you. Yep. At the very least, if you're not happy with <laughs> you, your offer, you better hope that money's a factor for everybody, but yeah. Okay. For me, it's a factor. Yeah. Um, OK. Last thing she said was 
she was she you know she said many times like well you're gonna have to pay something you're gonna have to pay something this idea yeah. that you can get a full ride is just not true which you know maybe she just doesn't know that it is true but you're gonna have to pay something and she she talked about the value of it you know how like oh it's just it's worth it it's it's worth it to pay mm-hmm. but then she also said I'm also not saying to get into debt at a half million dollars level. That is also not a good idea. So she's saying explicitly that it's not a good idea to get into half a million dollars of debt. She's saying it's not a good idea to pay the price that we are posting on our website. That is what she is saying, because especially if you had gone to University of Michigan undergrad. Yeah. And then come straight through into University of Michigan Law School. Yeah. If you're not getting significant grant based aid, I am not talking about loans. I mean, I'm talking about scholarships. If you're not getting scholarships, if you're not getting free money, then you will graduate with more than half a million dollars of debt from those seven years of education at the University of Michigan. If you're paying their prices that are posted on the website. So, you know, that's just her and her own words. But I think it is established then that full price is not the price. Like it's not like if you're paying full price, that is dumb. There is no reason to pay anything close to full price. Yeah. I think 50% is going to be like the minimum, even like feasible type of offer. And then Ben and I are still, even if, even if Michigan admits you and wants to charge you 50%, Ben and I are always going to be looking at, Hey, how do you feel about St. Louis? Cause wash is right there and you're going to be able to go for free. A great school for free. It's ranked really, what? Three clicks lower in the rankings, seven <laughs> clicks lower in the rankings. Not. <laughs> yeah. You, you really need the Honda at half price over a Toyota for free. Like I just. I don't see it. You can have this car. Here are the keys. Walk away with a free car or pay half price for something that's mildly better, if at all. Right. I mean, you know, you'd be able to watch big time college football, though, while you're there for three years, (laughs) which they're not going to have at Wash U. Yeah. But if you're going to law school so that you could be a college football fan, I mean, that that is not the reason to do that. (laughs) Okay. What's this? You got this from Slate? Yeah. So my dad sent me this article. It's uh, top of mind, obviously, because we have one kid in college and another one knocking on the doorstep. The article is entitled, One of Higher Ed's Worst Kept Secrets is Out. It's even grimmer than we knew. That's hyperbolic. But this article by John Warner on September uh, 24th of this year, 2022, is talking about what schools have done with their in-state and out-of-state student populations. So obviously schools make a lot more money, sometimes three times as much when they bring on an out-of-state student rather than an in-state student. And surprise, surprise, since 2002 to today, (laughs) these schools have dramatically, a lot of state flagship universities have dramatically shifted the ratio of in-state to out-of-state students. So for example, in 2002, the University of Alabama had an in-state to out-of-state ratio of roughly 75 to 25. So there were way three times as many in-state students than out-of-state students. 
By 2018, that ratio had almost flipped to 34 to 66, the equivalent of a 180% increase in out-of-state students. And this one quote just stuck out to me, and I just want to hit this home yet again for anyone who still doesn't believe us. This article continues, as current University of California Chancellor Carol Christ said in a 2016 interview, she said, colleges and universities are fundamentally in the business of enrolling students for tuition dollars. And (laughs) this is one way they're doing it, right? Like, hey, I can admit an in-state student for a third of the tuition as an out-of-state student. If you don't believe that colleges are a business, that law schools, which are just part of that system, are a business, you need to hear what the people who run these institutions are saying. Yeah. I wonder if Carol Christ like uh, accidentally said that in an interview, (laughs) you know, because we just saw Dean Z in that exact video that we were talking about. She like hesitated and almost stumbled as she said, you know, law schools. Well, I mean, you know, they're 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 thinking about this almost as a business. Almost. Yeah. And it's like, like, no, what do you mean? Almost as a business. (laughs) I mean, the the thing is, you know, they're they're a nonprofit. Right. So or most of these schools are nonprofits. State schools certainly are going to be, you know, nonprofit state entities, but they sell product (laughs) to customers. And. They pretend like they're not in a business, maybe that has to do something with their nonprofit status, but they are clearly in a revenue generating mode. I mean, that's they're all oh. about it. Hey, look, it doesn't matter that they're not profit, that they're nonprofit. You take the money that you bring in, you make your university even better, you put it into whatever you want, whether that's the football program or what. But then that leads to a more prestigious university which leads to you as a dean or whatever as a successful baller. Yeah, you you build exactly. No, I mean, very dude. We've been talking about. I've been still following David Fagman's emails on, uh, you know, that he sends to the UC Hastings alumni network, and it's just like, I don't know. The whole thing to me seems so self-aggrandizing. You know, like his business as Chancellor of Hastings is to be the CEO of Hastings, and he's always in the business suit, and he's like building skyscrapers in the middle of San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you know, with, with the wild amount of revenue that they take in. Yeah. Um, Eric just sent us some links, uh, Ben, he just emailed us privately editor, Eric, uh, and teacher demon teacher, Eric emailed us about, um, debt financing in university, uh, education. Mm. And it was just talking about how the universities are, um, wildly in debt mostly because i think because of like real estate expansions oh interesting it's not that much of a problem for businesses to be in debt is the thing right Mm -hmm. like the every big business that you know think of a big business they how you grow yeah they do a lot of debt financing right like i mean not apple (laughs) apple's just sitting on mountains of cash but there are, you know, it's a, it's a very common growth strategy that you make a business plan and you go to the bank and you borrow money and then you start selling whatever. And then as your revenue increases, then you're, you can actually access more capital and expand even bigger or even faster or whatever. And you like all real estate is works that way, right? It's all leveraged money. 
Yep. So the fact that the schools are leveraged is not inherently bad, in my opinion, but it does indicate that they're, you know, they're running like a business. They they generate wild amounts of revenue and then they spend wild amounts of money and they frequently do debt financing in order to cover that. The the facts that uh, Eric had presented were you know, pretty interesting where it's like, well, the typical student is paying, you know, a few thousand dollars to service the debt of the institution because mm-hmm. they are a leveraged business. So they have borrowed money and they're now going to basically pass that cost on to you while you're there. Yep. Colleges and universities are fundamentally in the business of enrolling students for tuition dollars. I like that. I wish they said that. <laughs> More often, <laughs> just made it clear that that's what they do. Yeah. They're selling you something. Yeah. It's not a public service. They're not there to do it as you, to, it's not, you know, the community colleges maybe are like yeah. a pure public service, especially in California where they all are free now, I think. They're free. Well, that's wonderful because out here, they still cost more than I would expect. They actually, community colleges out here cost what I would expect a four-year institution to cost. When I'm thinking about sending my kids to school in Virginia uh, specifically, or all Virginia and North Carolina, just um, at least the places we've been looking. Maybe like, I'm wrong. Me, Maybe California didn't do that. Maybe it was mm-hmm. only City College San Francisco that did that. That mm-hmm. seems pretty likely that it would have been um, City College that did that. Hmm. Sorry. So in your area is what is it? What's it cost? Uh, well, <laughs> I just know for for our oldest son, one credit or no, sorry. Three credits. He's taking a three credit class and that class costs $2,000. So, you know, to me, that's, that's a lot of money. Wow. It's going to get cheaper once he gets takes more because once you take fewer classes, right, it's like, I guess it's <laughs> more expensive. But still, it's, it's the kind of thing where I'm like, what? Like, wow. Like, that's what the cost of a four-year institution, I think, should be. Totally. But, Wait, they give you a preferred rate if you take more than one class? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, it, like if you take the standard, you know, 16 credits per semester or whatever. If you're full time, so, then you yeah, get Yeah, it actually, it, it, it drops just like a business. You know how like if you buy, you know, I don't know, a membership for 10 months, it's going to be cheaper than if you buy it for five months. It's the exact same thing. As your credits go up, the price per credit goes down. But yeah, the more you spend, <laughs> the more you save. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, cool. All right. Um, this email came in. It is from anonymous. It's about reading comprehension. The subject says RC reading speed question mark. Uh, the email says after getting a 166 on the LSAT last year, I've only recently in the last month and a half begun studying for my retake. I've been using the demon during that time. And as you guys promised, it's blown my mind. Semicolon. The service and its animating philosophy have given me a completely new perspective on the test. What do you think our animating philosophy is? Ben? I don't know. I was just thinking about that. I was like, it's animating. So maybe the don't idea pay for law of, school. Oh, okay. I was thinking maybe focus on the intuition. It's animating because now you can like free yourself. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. The LSAT yeah. is easy. Yeah. Yeah. The LSAT is easy, I would say. And don't pay for law school. Our, our animating uh, philosophies. Sure. Uh, the emphasis on understanding. Oh, wait, I could just keep reading. The reader will tell me what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> the emphasis on understanding and accuracy over speed, the repudiation of gimmicks in favor of slow and patient problem solving, 
not only resonates with me, but seems to be paying dividends in my studies. I do tons of slow, deliberate drilling and reviewing. Semicolon. I'm currently at 93 on arguments and 89 on reading, and I feel like I'm actually beginning to understand the passages and arguments on a level that I didn't before. My question is about reading comprehension. Do you guys see any value in trying to slowly improve one's reading speed over several months without compromising understanding through a daily habit of reading, say, brief articles for 15 minutes in a speed reading app? slowly and gradually upping the speed once you get used to the current level? Ben looks puzzled. Yeah. Um, I don't have a problem with someone reading every day brief articles, but I'm a little concerned that this, once you shift your goal, then you can start compromising that understanding. I mean, if you can really do yeah. it without compromising understanding, fine. But as soon as your goal shifts, I'm, I'm concerned. That's all. I don't think you can do those two at once. I think you need to have one in golf. It's one swing thought. You're allowed to think about one thing while you hit a shot. Don't really care what that thing is, but you need to have one thing, not one thing or zero things is probably ideal, but not not two things. You're not you're not going to do two things in the same swing. You're only going to th you need to think about one of those things. And I feel like on reading comprehension, you need to be thinking about comprehending the passage. Mm -hmm. So I don't see any I, I can't really imagine that this speed reading thing, I guess, whatever, 15 minutes a day and you do it as an experiment, you know, do it for what, two weeks and see how you feel. Sure. But it's not a pearl, right? I mean, it's not something we're not going to recommend it in class. But no. if you want to experiment it, yeah. Well, hey, look, we're science based. So if it blows you away in terms of helping you, let us know. Anonymous continues. I used to do this, but stopped because any time spent speed reading is time that could be spent on LR questions or RC passages, which both seem far more beneficial than an activity that doesn't involve doing actual questions. Yeah. And it doesn't involve LSAT language. It's just yeah. not, it's just not the LSAT. Yep. And we got 10,000 LSAT questions. We got a hundred full tests roughly. Nevertheless, Anonymous continues, there is the dubious argument that faster reading leaves more time for understanding that less time to read, say a paragraph leaves more time to think about it afterward. Nope. I think you're going after pennies and losing dollars by trying to get this, the sentences read in fewer seconds. Well, you're also now you're separating your reading from your understanding. Yeah, they happen together. That's I mean, that's your problem, I think. Maybe that's a bigger problem for all students everywhere. It's like if you suck at reading comprehension, maybe it's because you're separating the reading from the comprehending. Like mm -hmm. reading is comprehending. If you're not comprehending, then what the hell are you doing? You're not actually reading it. You're reading a word and then another word and then another word, but you're not getting the story behind it. Like you're not understanding that there's meaning there. You're not putting the pieces of the puzzle together as you read. I, I hate this idea that I'm going to read it fast so that I can then separately think about it. I mean, thinking does take place after you read. 
but it also takes place as you read. That's the problem. But do it one sentence at a time. You know, I uh, I watched the video of one of our teachers classes the other day, uh, Matthew, uh, relatively new teacher with us. And he he was talking about the use of control F on reading comprehension to do mm. control F for periods. And I can see some value in that. Does it highlights all the periods and makes people stop? Yep. And I think you might even be able to tab from one period to the next. Yeah. But but the idea there is a period is a stop sign and you need to understand what they just said. And yeah. you know how sometimes people read in a weird monotone where it's like they're not even reading the punctuation. Yeah. They're just reading the words and it's just like one sentence just bleeds right into the next. Well, so I'm laughing because I do, <laughs> I read with my kids every day, uh, the 10 year old and the 12 year old, and they, they don't do that as much anymore. Cause I always call them out on it, but they do that sometimes. And you know, it just does not make any sense. It's just like plow through that period. It's like, are you following? What's no, that's, happened? it's a clear sign that you're just like not getting the story. Yeah. You're not getting, you're not comprehending. You're not getting it. You're not, you're not awake. So I, and I've heard other people say, I read it, I skim it once and then I read it again. No, oh. I don't like this. I feel like the, the skimming it is a waste of time. I would rather oh. that you just read it. I don't feel like it is. It is. Okay. Good. <laughs> I mean, hey, learning differences, uh, cognitive differences. I'm Maybe. not an expert, so. I'm very worried though. When someone starts skimming, I think that you're going to fall right into the assumptions that the outside is hoping you make. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're going to skim it and then start answering questions, you know, or you're going to look at the questions first and then skim the passage to see where the answers might be. And then you're going to actually read the path. Mm. Any of those strategies just seem overcomplicated, that it's not intuitive. I would much prefer that you just read it one sentence at a time. And that's where that control F tip, I think it, it might be worth practicing. I would like to hear what our listeners think of that. Please email help at thinkinglsat.com and let me know if you try this uh, control uh, F for periods uh, while you're doing your reading comp. If you find that to be to be useful as a tool for slowing you down, uh, I would like to know about it. Anyway, uh, Anonymous says, I'm highly skeptical and it seems way too gimmicky and I would love to hear your thoughts. Well, we agree with your intuition, Anonymous. That sounds like a real bad idea. You want to read this next one from Julia? Sure. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and I'm so grateful that I found the demon for my LSAS studying. I'm hoping I might be able to get your opinion on my current situation. I'm a junior with a 3.92 GPA and I'm deciding whether or not to take my fifth course this semester, credit or no credit. I took one credit, no credit course freshman year during the pandemic and I have an, another on my transcript as a withdrawal. Okay, so you'd have essentially three total. This would be my second uh, credit, no credit course, semicolon. The course would be marked on my transcript as credit or CR without any grade listed and no GPA impact. I'm taking a five course load this semester and I'm worried about this particular history course slash professor. I had no intention of taking this, but it was the only thing that fit into my schedule after I got waitlisted from another class in my major. The assignments slash reading are incredibly unreasonable, 500 pages per week plus papers. 
and the professor isn't very transparent about expectations slash grading policies. My other classes are rather demanding as well, semicolon. I'm taking three others at Bryn Mawr and one towards my master's at UPenn. Should I take it, credit, no credit, just in case to protect my GPA, give myself a breather, or would law schools view this negatively? I would take it, credit, no credit. It's going to help you avoid this unreasonable workload from this particular class, which will then also help you have more time for your other classes, which actually are going to be graded. I would not worry about a credit, blah, blah, blah on your record. What do you think? I just can't imagine that that matters in the post COVID world. One class. I mean, what's going to matter is a C and B's in your other classes. Cause you can't handle the workload. <laughs> Everybody's got pass, no pass stuff. Every, everybody's got weird looking transcripts right now. There's a million reasons why you could, why that could be happening. Um, I have friends who are like still super in COVID mode, Ben. Are you aware of people like that? Nope. I, I, I know people who like barely go outside. They have immunocompromised, um, family members maybe. Um. And they just are like, they really live their life a hundred percent online now. Wow. That and seems like it's got its own complications. It does. Um, you know, these are modern people. These are actually like smart, progressive, you know, city folks. These are people who live in LA, uh, attorney buddy of mine. And it's just like, they, uh, no, they're, or, you know, some of them like have babies. People are like mm. super, super like freaked out about exposing their babies the, to, to this unknown, you know, um, illness. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it's just we're not that far out of the pandemic. Right. I guess Biden told us that the pandemic is over. But, um, you know, the truth is there's still hundreds of people dying or thousands of people dying <laughs> around the world. And uh, there are people that whose lives are still significantly impacted. and. I don't know, just weird shit like this, like having a credit. No, that's not a, how is that a bad mark on your, just doesn't seem bad at all. But it could be bad for this class and others if you don't do well on it or it stresses you out. So I would, I would say, hell yes, just do the credit, no credit. Yeah. Why not? I mean, I don't, I don't, I just like actually don't understand the argument against it. I think they're worried that a CR on their transcript is going to look bad, but it's just neutral. That's all it is. Everybody has credit, no credit stuff at some at places on their. You're not talking about two straight years of it, which actually in the pandemic might have made sense. But you're talking about one class. I mean, it's very, you know, depending on the school, depending on what classes you're taking, like at UC Davis, all of our physical education classes were totally credit, no credit. Yeah. What's wrong with taking a tennis class or a swimming class or whatever? I mean. I, I can't. I think you're way overthinking it. They care about your UGPA and they care about your LSAT. Yep. And so, yeah, protect your UGPA with with a with a pass, no pass class. Absolutely. All right. And uh, Anonymous says, hey, Ben and Nathan, I've been listening regularly to both of your podcasts for several months now, uh, including many archived episodes. So that's this podcast, Thinking LSAT, and also our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. I have a question about the LSAT writing section, which I recently completed after watching Ben's video. 
For a little background about me, I'm a college senior at a top liberal arts college. While I have never never been officially diagnosed with dyslexia, I have always had some signs and symptoms. My dad and grandfather struggle in the same ways, and so I've always assumed it's genetic. I have used spell check and Grammarly to great effect and have no problem getting good grades at a challenging school. I did not apply for accommodations on the LSAT. On the LSAT writing, however, the supposedly available spell check did not work. In an annoying twist, it underlined misspelled words, but would not offer a drop down bar with a correction suggestion exclamation point. I completed the essay, but it has a few spelling errors and a couple missed punctuation marks like commas, etc. I believe the content of my argument is solid. The question is, colon, should I go with what I've got or should I take the writing portion again when I take my next LSAT? I don't want to call attention to the problems in the one I have on file now, and I'm not sure how likely it is that admissions officers are going to read it anyway. Thanks for your help, Anonymous. What would an attorney do? <laughs> an attorney would do it again. Better. I don't think it's a big deal. It's 35 minutes of your life. Do it again. Spelling mistakes, I don't think are going to be a big deal in this writing sample, but they also just don't look great, especially for someone who's applying to become a professional writer. I would just do it again. Stop thinking about it. Hopefully you can fix your mistakes. I mean, it sounds like you need those auto corrections. Are you going to get it the next time? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to have the same problem next time, then, you know, the thing is, choose a different word. Like if you're relying on a drop down bar so that you can learn how to spell the word that you're trying to spell. There are other words that you do know how to spell. Like using big vocabulary is not going to impress anybody and it's going to do the opposite of impress them when you misspell stuff. Yeah, I agree. So I think just, yeah, do it again and don't worry about you. You don't get the drop down suggestions. Just uh, just reword it. Yep. All right. Want to read this one from Rachel? Yep. I hope this finds you well and maybe makes it to the podcast. I'm honestly just blown away by the demon platform. Oh, cool. I'm glad, glad to hear that. I took my diagnostic exam mid-July and got a 145. I was using to study afterwards and was frustrated with the way they explain things. Oops, I just read that company name. Oh, well, I work out frequently and wanted to learn more about the LSAT and decided to find a podcast for the gym. I started listening to the LSAT Demon podcast in August. Since then, I haven't stopped drinking the Kool-Aid. I like to call it the facts. Um, and I have a premium. <laughs> we got to come plan. up with something better for that. That's not a good, <laughs> it's not a good burn. It's not like a good retort there. To, we need to, we need something. Um, we need, we need something a little more pithy, but we'll, we'll workshop it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a premium plan and I have been following your one question a day rule of working through things thoroughly before worrying about timing. Tomorrow I will have been using the platform for one month, drilling practice sections and plenty of explanation videos later. And I just scored a 164 on the practice test I took today. Okay. Wow. 19 points up from your diagnostic. I'm planning on signing up for the November LSAT because I feel confident that I can continue to get better over the next 1.5 months. This is all thanks to you two and your excellent resources, encouragement, and honesty along this journey. Hoping to write back with a 170 something next time. Yeah, we hope so too. Nice work, Rachel. Keep up the good work. You know, you're the one doing all the hard work. <laughs> no, totally. Everybody always wants to thank us. And I forget to say 
too often. I forget to just say, no, it's you. You're the one that's doing it. I mean, we're just telling you how we think it makes perfect sense. And you, you're going to just put in the work and figure it out. So, yep. Yeah, no doubt you're going to be successful, Rachel. Uh, hopefully Eric can, uh, bleep out the, the, um, <laughs> I bet he did already bleep out yeah. the company name. Beep. <laughs> yeah, it can be. I like that. Yep. Hello guys. I just wanted to give a little praise to Lily. She replied to one of my flaw questions and gave me what I think is a pearl when doing flaw questions. Oh, should we make this a pearl versus turd? Yep. Okay. Here it is. Pearl versus turd from one of our own teachers, Lily. Um, by way of Daisy, who's writing in. These are the questions she told me to ask myself. First, does this answer describe something the author says? Second, is that why the argument is flawed? So that's the, is that a pearl for flaw questions? Sure. I mean, it's exactly what we encourage people to ask themselves as they do flaw questions. Is that something the argument did wrong? Yeah. Did they do it wrong? Two steps. <laughs> did they do it wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so ours uh, are a little shorter, but I, as long as it helps you understand what you're trying to do in a flaw question, it's a win. Well, we and amended that, that in, into a pearl. I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, Lily got that from us anyway, because we've been saying that for a long time. But that's a, it's just a different way of saying it. But yeah, on, on flaw questions, you're looking for something you can prove they did. Like they, the author has to have given you evidence that they did this thing. So like you can't pick an answer that talks about small sample sizes unless the author gave you a reason to believe that it was a very small sample. Yep. Like I talked to two lawyers in the elevator. Therefore, everyone in this building is a lawyer. You know, that would be like, oh, well, wait a second. That's only two people. That's a very small sample from a whole big building. Like, how do you would you you don't know that that's all all lawyers in that building. So you can't if it was a weakened question, that would be a good answer, potentially, because if they had used too small of a sample, that would be a problem. That's the big difference between weakened questions and flaw questions, by the way, on flaw questions. The first step is, did they do it? Then is it wrong that they did that thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a pearl. Scoreboard is now uh, 21 pearls, 66 turds, 26 ties. If you have a pearl versus turd candidate, you can email help at thinkinglsat.com or find us on social at thinkinglsat. Okay. Got this one from Chris. Yep. Hey guys, listening to the latest episode and just wanted to mention that the GI Bill is no longer or no longer has an expiration for those that were discharged after 2013, thanks to the 2017 Forever GI Bill. Okay, that's good to know. And we have a link here from the VA website. That is, that's nice. Thank you very much, Chris, for writing that in. Yep. I mean, we know people who were trying to get into law school before a certain time because they were worried about their GI benefits expiring. But hopefully we no longer are going to think about that. Although people who, yeah, so people who were discharged prior to 2013 are maybe still going to be worrying about that. But that'll go away if this bill stays, if the rule stays this way. Okay. Yep. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Oh yeah. Go. Yeah. Read, read this last, read this last bit. (laughs) Okay. So Chris ends his nice email with just thought I should mention that in the event, some crayon eating crayon eating window licking space cadet of a Marine veteran can't figure it out. Respectfully, a 
crayon eating marine veteran. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought that maybe he was like an army or a navy guy shitting on the marines, but no, he was a he's a marine shitting on the marines. So himself, yeah. I guess he eats crayons too. Okay, good luck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the green ones. Yeah, delicious. All right. Melissa says, Hello, Ben and Nathan. I have three letters of recommendation. Two are bosses from Firehouse Subs and Coldstone. That's the ice cream place. And both of those bosses loved me and still keep in contact with me today. So I believe they wrote good letters for me. Also, I have one recommendation from a professor. It was during COVID and we barely met in person and it was not much of an interactive class, even though I was trying hard to get close to him. I just got a job at a law firm and I am a legal assistant and my attorney I work with loves me and compliments my work ethic and catching him on his mistakes all the time. I feel like he would write an amazing letter for me. So I just started this job July 6th this year. How soon is too soon to ask for a letter of recommendation? Do you think? So I think Melissa's going to maybe replace this letter from a professor with a new one from uh, a lawyer boss. What do you think? Yep. Yeah, you're good now. Like she's been there since July 6th and that's long enough that the new boss. The attorney likes her. Yeah. Just say, hey, by the way, I'm applying to law school. You feel cool with uh, writing a quick letter for me? Yeah, that lawyer is going to write things that make you look hardworking, detail-oriented. Maybe you're reliable. Maybe you're punctual. Yep. Lots of things that are going to make you look like a potentially successful law student. So some professor that doesn't even know you uh, for a couple reasons, I yeah, I mean, I I would just go ahead and replace it. Yeah. And it's coming from an attorney. That's great. I think they'll know, they'll have I, uh, more authority about what it means yeah. to be successful as an attorney. I see now that, that Melissa is asking a little different question than I thought she was asking. I thought she was asking, should I replace that letter? But she's actually asking how soon is too soon to ask from that attorney. So do you think that attorney is going to mind? She's only been there since July 6th, July, August, September. She's been there three months. Yeah, but she's not, all they really care about is when you're actually going to law school. That's not going to change. So I don't see a problem with asking now or asking in six months. In fact, now is even better because, oh, well, it's it's not for a year. It's a far away thing. The closer you get to it, the more of a shock it's going to be. You're assuming that this applicant is trying to apply next cycle. It could be even later, right? No, it could be this cycle. In which case uh, she needs to ask now so that she can get the letter now so that she can apply. No, no. Yeah. But even if you're applying this cycle, you're not leaving in for a year. Right. You get what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the attorney's not going to be like, oh, shit, you're, I'm losing you. Yeah. The attorney's going to be like, oh, well, so I have you for at least another year. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If you, yeah. So I, I don't see a problem with asking. Yeah. Although if you're not applying this cycle, then definitely don't worry about it and don't, don't ask now. Like, wait, you can wait. Six months if you're yep. if you're uh, applying next cycle. Yep. All right. Want to read Joshua? I have enjoyed listening to your podcast and really appreciate the free information you share. Exclamation point. I'm wondering if you'd have any thoughts on whether I should retake the LSAT in January 2023 for applying this cycle. I like the idea of retaking it, Joshua. I don't like the idea of applying this cycle. Yeah. But okay, let's see what you have to say. I scored a 170 on the August 2022 test after self-studying over the summer with Bleep. 
and LSAC's practice test. On practice tests, logic games was by far my weakest section. I always ran out of time. So I spent the vast majority of my study on games. Okay. On test day, I was shocked to finish games early and I believe went minus zero. Since I didn't study reading comp and LR much, I think I could improve my score in January, but I wonder if that would put my application to T14s at such a disadvantage that it wouldn't be worth it. I consider taking November 2022, but doing grad school full-time and working part-time on the side doesn't leave much time leave me much time during the semester to study LSAT, but I was thinking I could study over Christmas break for the January test. Ah, I hate it. Yeah. You're just, yeah, you're trying to squeeze too much in as opposed to focusing on the one thing that matters the most, and that's your LSAT score. Get the best LSAT score you can possibly get in January, February, March, then start getting ready to apply next cycle. Yeah, go to Stanford, go to Harvard, Go to Yale, do that with a high 170s LSAT that you get anytime between now and next fall. Apply, um, you know, this show's coming out in early October. Apply 10 months from now, 10, 11 months from now. Some of the big, big schools, the top, top schools don't even don't really even care about applications in September. So you could apply a little bit later. But yeah, January LSAT. God, applying in February? Nah. And I hate the idea that you're going to just study over Christmas break and then take the test in January. Two weeks to get to change the score that's going to have the biggest impact on your scholarship dollars and your acceptance rates. I mean, you're obviously getting it. You have I'm not saying that the that the LSAT prep itself is going to necessarily be arduous. But I would make sure that it's not arduous by stretching out the studying a little bit. Like, wait till your grad program's over, then study. Like, over, over. Not Christmas break. Yeah. Or just do, do it an side hour by side. Yeah, hour do it every other day. Like, right. Start your grad now. grades don't matter. <laughs> so, actually, that's true. It's grad school grades. So, who, get, who even gives a shit? Why are you in grad school, by the way? I mean, I don't want to be a dick about it, but like as a man who has three totally unnecessary graduate school degrees. Yeah. What, what are you doing? Like what, what's your, what's your, what's your end game here? And you might have a perfectly reasonable one. There might be a reason why you're in grad school now, but grad school just for grad school is a great way to waste wild amounts of money and time. So you're already there. But, you know, I mean, I don't think, Ben, you're not telling uh, Joshua to intentionally get bad grades. No, <laughs> but I'm really... saying you can find 30 minutes a day to do the LSAT, which is going to have a much bigger. It's going to have an impact. It's going to matter. Your grades yeah, exactly. aren't going to have an impact. So, Well, the, like really bad grades could have an impact, I think. Sure. Um, but but yeah, B's and A minuses and that type of thing are not going to have any impact at all. Nor will A pluses have any impact at all on those grad grades. Sure. Not for law school specifically. Now, depending on maybe you're doing something else. But in that case, I would be like, why are you thinking about law school? Okay. Um, Chris says, oh, subject, kudos to Leslie. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Demon user here who recently worked with Leslie to edit my personal statement. That's Leslie Blodgett, our editor on staff. I didn't know that personal statement editing could be done through the demon until I came ac across her blurb on the about us page. 
I cannot give high enough praise for the work she did to improve my writing. She always turned around draft edits in less than a business day and found ways to make my points clearer and more concise. I went from wincing while reading my personal statement to finally believing I'm on my way to a piece of quality writing. I've always considered you two to be the final bosses of personal statement review. My statement can be found here. Oh, well, sorry. Thanks, but we don't we don't do that on the show anymore. Appreciate it. For good measure, here's a picture of my dog Pico drilling some reading comprehension. And that is coming to us from Chris. We have a dog with, I think, a cup of coffee and a bow tie looking at the demon. Yeah, it's a a nice picture. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Sorry, I was thinking about this. Life is such a weird set of twists and turns. Leslie is my cousin. Years and years ago, she gave me the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Motivated me to quit my job and start strategy prep. Wow, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Which led to eventually the demon the podcast and everything we're doing today. And now she's working for us and work for Leslie. Yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, um, it was Leslie was playing the long game and yeah. uh, she was like, I <laughs> Why want don't you, you go to hustle out there in the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's terrific. Uh, how do people like engage Leslie if they want to, I guess they just go to our uh, about page, huh? Yeah, I think the easiest thing is just to email help at lsatdemon.com and then that will get you rerouted to Brittany who will then route you to Leslie. I mean, you could also email Leslie at lsatdemon.com, but I think it's probably easier to work through the help team. Yeah, or you could go to the type form. Um, If you go to lsatdemon.com forward slash about and go down, uh, you'll see Leslie and there's a check availability there and you can uh, fill out a form to get in touch that way. But help at lsatdemon.com best in the world customer service. You want to read this one from Anonymous? Yep. Hello, Ben and Nathan. Do you think one day law schools will stop negotiating scholarships? It seems that the balance of power is shifting away from the law schools and unto the applicants. (laughs) Onto, maybe? Or toward? Yeah, Uh, toward, if we're talking about a balance of power. Yeah. Yeah. Applicants are applying to way more schools for negotiation purposes and also aiming for higher LSAT scores to gain not admittance, but scholarships to strengthen their negotiation power. Well, what's your evidence for that? I mean, I think thinking LSAT listeners are doing that and LSAT demon students are doing that. But, you know, we're small potatoes in the market. We're not. I don't know that. I don't know that this whole game is changing like that. I think you're getting an extraordinarily biased sample of emails when you listen to this show. You're listening to people who have been listening to us. They are doing everything they can to not pay for law school. And that often takes them months to get on board with, right? Most people who start this journey are expecting to pay for law school, expecting to pay a lot and just trying to get in. Yeah. Um, So I think we're a very small part of the market. And even if more people are doing this than before, it's still super, super small. That's my guess. Yeah. Anyway, I guess we could accept it as a premise, right? We'll uh, we'll do LSAT logical reasoning here, except that that is true, that uh, applicants are applying to far more schools for negotiation purposes. Well, not and that's not a good way of saying it either. Like we don't we really don't want you to apply to many schools for negotiations purposes. Well, 
not in order to negotiate with the schools. Rather, we want to see what their first offer is. And I guess you could just call that all negotiation. Maybe I should stop. <laughs> I just don't like this. It like it sounds bad to say I'm applying to schools for negotiations purposes. No, you're applying to that school to see what kind of a deal you might be able to get at that school. Maybe they'll maybe they'll knock your socks off. That's why you're applying to that school. But anyway, I don't ahead. see why it sounds bad necessarily, I guess, unless you're. I, yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's what savvy uh, applicants are doing. They're applying to multiple schools so that they can get those offers and then be in a better position to Which negotiate. Which is the first for, step of. Yeah, you just but I guess I just you're not going to negotiate with 20 schools that you apply to. No, no. But it's for the negotiations that you decide to engage in. So, yeah, you're going to negotiate with some of those schools. All right. Yep. Yep. This anonymous continues. I suspect that law schools will find a way to combat this and do away with negotiations altogether. See, so that's what they're talking about. They're talking about like they think that the game is let's apply to 30 schools and negotiate with all of them. And then, you know, it's, that's not the game that we're really playing. I mean, I think you should actually only ask one or two schools maybe for more money. Sure. OK. I, but I, I think <laughs> I don't believe that this is going to happen because as the only way to make negotiations go away is for schools to start doing what CarMax does and say, OK, well, here's our fixed price, because as long as the prices are fluid, they're going to want to offer you less than what they have to. And then sometimes they're going to try. They're going to want to offer more until they get you. If you're going to ask for more money, I, yeah, I don't, they, it's like inherent in the system. They're going to have to decide that they're not going to price discriminate. Yep. They're going to charge everybody one price and the system have is the price working. is the price. It's like Costco yeah. or CarMax. Yep. And yeah, that means that they're not going to be able to soak the people who are willing to pay the most. And they're not going to be able to give a full ride to people who probably could get a full ride elsewhere or who, or who could get into a higher ranked school. Yep. And that model, you know, just currently there's, it seems as if no law schools use that model of pricing. Well, it's not competitive because so, what's going to happen is the people who are willing to pay more will pay less. And the people who don't want to pay that price and are higher qualified are going to go somewhere else. So go you're to just going to drop yeah. well, in the rankings and you're going to lose yeah. money. Unless, unless the, unless the value really was there, you know, like I, I could see, um, like the top Harvard, Stanford, Yale could just do it like reasonable pricing. Hey, we're going to charge everybody $30,000 a year. Yep. You want to come here? That's the deal. And now we're going to look at your merit. That's it. Are you good? Who's better than who? <laughs> yeah. But you just, I don't think you have the luxury of doing that when you're university of Michigan. Yeah. Like there's, there are elite schools above you. You're a Toyota or a Honda. I can't remember which one, but you're one of those. And there's lots of you and everybody wants to be a Mercedes or whatever your favorite car is. Um, but there's only really a couple of those. Yep. Well, and the incentives are just so strong, right? You could, yeah. even if you just tweak the tuition a little bit, now you can pull someone away and that's going to help your, your rankings. Anyways, this person continues, to me, it does seem like a bad business move that a school would offer an applicant with a certain LSAT and UGPA a set amount of money to encourage them to attend their school, 
but then up the offer when the applicant returns with an acceptance and or scholarship from another rival school. But that is what happens. That is true. I mean, Dean Z said that explicitly. If you have scholarship money from a competitor school of ours, you should let us know. I mean, she wants to know that information. I don't see why that's a bad business move. That actually seems smart. If someone doesn't come back to you with an acceptance or scholarship money from another school, then why would you feel the need to try to pull them in? Because she she wants to price discriminate, right? She yeah, wants to yeah. charge you the maximum that you're willing to pay. So one of the ways of showing her credibly, I'm not willing to pay that much, is to say, I do have this offer here from WashU, and I'm going to go there unless you make me an equivalent offer. Yep. Here's where Anonymous is really confused. Anonymous, Anonymous says... Why couldn't the school discern the value of that LSAT and UGPA from the start? They do discern the value. They know what you're worth to them. They're just trying to get more money out of you yeah. and hoping you say yes. Yeah, well, and frequently they make you what they think is a fair offer on their first offer. You know, like I, I do think that there are schools out there that are trying to do value pricing per applicant right away that they just give scholarship offers on your offer of admission, right? Like for mm -hmm. example, um, New England Law School that's out there like fishing for people saying, hey, if you get in, we're gonna give you a full ride. They know that you're overqualified. So they're like, if, you know, we're only gonna admit you if you're overqualified. And at that point, we're gonna pay, you're gonna pay the fair price of $0. So they're, they are, they're doing their best to, to discern the value of that LSAT and UGPA from the start. They don't wanna insult you with no offer. If the, So that's not, I think that <clears throat> Anonymous seems to think that what's happening is typical law schools are just admitting people, no scholarship, and then waiting to see who asks for money. That, that's not what happens. They give scholarships to overly qualified applicants along with admissions very frequently. It's just that they don't always give you their best offer. Which is totally normal and rational. Like, yeah. who... Wait. <laughs> If you go to some market in the street and people are trying to negotiate with you and they say, hey, how much do you want for this purse? You're not going to say, well, you know what? The most I'd be willing to pay is $100. No, no, no. Really? Push comes to shove. I'd give them 110 and then throw that out there. You say something like, uh, how about 50? Is that cool? And you say a cool number that isn't going to insult them so much that it ends the negotiation. Nope. But you're also like would be happier to get it at that price than at your maximum willingness to pay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what Anonymous isn't understanding here is that that school, if you negotiate and get the maximum that they're willing to pay, they're still happy to pay that amount. They're they're That's good for them. They're not going to take a deal that's not good for them. Yep. So they're not going to ever make you an offer that they're not excited to give you to give you. But they might give you an offer that's something less than what they <laughs> could give you on the first offer just to keep you in the conversation. Yeah. Well, and why give away more than you have to? Like you might be perfectly happy with $50 and so great. Now they just had a little bonus. They can use that extra money somewhere else. Right. If you accept any offer, then you apparently are happy with that offer. Yeah, right. there's, it's, this is how the economy works. I don't know. It's well, not there's like, value. It's like ha having the benefit of like a couple negotiate one or one negotiations class, I think is really useful here because like what you don't realize is that there, there are several different prices at which both parties are going to be happy. 
Exactly. Yep. Okay. This person continues. It is a rat race that former and current law school admissions associates do not appear to enjoy or respect. That's their, that's their style. That's how they negotiate. That's what they're doing. You know, the schools that say we don't negotiate scholarships, that's their first gambit in the scholarship negotiation game. That's, it's, <laughs> it's a strategy. It's not like they're actually sitting there upset. <laughs> it's the first move in their chess game. And some schools yeah. have just a blanket policy. We don't negotiate scholarships. And they're just saying, but I mean, that's, that's what they say. Now, is that what they actually do? I don't know, because we have to see what the students come back with. And some students might get totally rebuffed. I mean, some schools might come back. Some students might come back with like, hey, um, yeah, I'm just not willing to pay that amount. Um, I, you know, I, I really want a better offer. And the school might come back with we don't negotiate scholarships. But that same school and same applicant, if the applicant would have instead said what Dean Z suggested, which was, you know, I just want to talk to you about some concerns that I have. And then mm -hmm. when you get to, you get to sit down with them and then when a you real tell person. them the yeah. concerns, then you say, you know, I have uh, $150,000 of debt from undergrad and um, I'm the only one who's paying for this and whatever. I have a new baby. I have a mortgage. I whatever it is, just any reasons. And oh, we're not negotiating. No, I'm we're just, just having a concern. conversation. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You might and, be surprised what they offer. Yeah. And they could easily say something like, well, you know, I mean, you, you know that we don't negotiate uh, scholarship money, but we do have a uh, just yesterday. Somebody <laughs> withdrew from they we had they had an offer and they decided to go somewhere else or they decided to defer or something. And so we actually do have this scholarship that's available. I might be able to get you some of that. But notice what they've done there, too. In their <laughs> they, mind. They, yeah. they still have one that chess move because when yeah. some school says we're not going to negotiate and then they turn around and give you ten thousand dollars you feel like you're the biggest victor in the world yep. but really you just lost because some other school would actually give you more but it doesn't seem as valuable because or, they're also out there negotiating <laughs> or that same school might have given you more you know they they go yeah to the, they go to the oh well we we have this one that's available it's a ten thousand dollar scholarship um i didn't think that you were uh eligible for it but now that you've shared your concerns with me and I know that you're eligible for it, then, you know, we can work with you. And um, you could say thank you very much and go away for a little while. And then you could come back and say, man, I still have some more concerns. <laughs> can I talk <laughs> you to gotta you about You got to play the concerns? same game. This is your card. Their card is we don't negotiate or we don't do many scholarships or they're very rare or whatever they want to say to basically discourage you from continuing to ask. But your strategy is to say, I just have concerns. I'm weighing these different options. We're not negotiating. We're just talking through my choices <laughs> and your choices. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't think this is going away. I will be shocked if this ever goes away. No, I mean, there's too much writing on it. Yeah. Like US news needs to go away and then lots of this stuff will change. But until that happens, I don't I don't see much like significantly changing. Okay. Um Last one, our student, uh, current student, Amrit says, Howdy, I was hoping to get your thoughts on the dual JD program offered at select schools. And while I have your attention, what are your thoughts on private versus public schools? Two separate issues. I feel like we've covered the dual JD thing a lot. So 
<laughs> she asked this in class the other night, and I think she was specifically talking about programs where you like go to a Canadian school and then you get a JD in a US school. So I thought she was talking about JD MBA or something oh, like that. Okay. Good. I'm and glad I you said that. I don't know anything about these schools in which you can get a JD from both universities, even though you're going to one. So it's like a sister program or something like that. So then you can have a JD in both countries. And the example she was giving me was Canada and US. It's and probably I said, well, expensive as shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think a big time law school in either country gives you all of the opportunities in both countries uh, right I yeah mean, I, I, don't, I don't i don't know my my reaction to that was hey well if you have any inklings of practicing u.s based law you may need some sort of u.s certification oh, yeah don't get me wrong if you're if you think you're going to end up in the u.s then i would prefer to go to law school in the u.s but that's for multiple reasons i mean for one thing the u.s gives these crazy scholarships so that's a good reason not to go to the Canadian schools, even though I think their system is overall way more civilized than our system. Sure. If I had an idea that I wanted to maybe practice in the U.S., then I would leverage a kick-ass LSAT for money in the U.S. Yeah, take advantage of the system here. On the other hand, if you know you're going to end up living your life in Canada, then I guess you have to talk to your fellow Canadians and figure out if there is any value to having a dual JD from, you know, some school in Chicago or DC or New York or whatever it is, maybe it's worth it. But yeah. I don't know. Like if we think about like foreign, you know, study abroad stuff in undergrad. Yeah. Those tend to be just like very expensive luxury years of school. Right. I mean, it's just like, Oh, you want to pay an extra 20 grand for this year and you can live in London. Yeah. Cool. I mean, it's great. Like if you can afford it, but I, I just, um, I don't know. How about public versus private schools? I don't think about it at all when it comes to law schools. All I care about is what do you have to pay? In the U S they charge basically the same prices. I mean, I guess that the, the really, really fancy private schools might charge more than the, the best state or best public schools. But Otherwise, yeah, I mean, we just don't even really notice. Um, some private schools might have like religious things that are either appealing or completely not appealing to you. Um, I've had multiple students apply to Pepperdine, you know, private school in Malibu. They're very Jesuit. And so oh. they're going to like ask you about your Christian whatever as hmm. part of the application. Oh, OK. So do you want to share that information? Do you want to be honest with them or lie? I don't know. Like everybody can have different thoughts on whether that's good or bad. Sure. Um, public schools, of course, I think are going to have a lot less of that, but price is basically the same. Scholarships are basically the same. I mean, you can get um, like in-state tuition, like we were talking about earlier at some schools. But even then the differences aren't as big as I'd expect. Sometimes they're pretty minimal. So yeah, just at the end of the day, what do you have to pay after your scholarship? That's what. Right. Matters. And remember, we had that one correspondent or maybe I just saw the emails and you didn't. But we had one correspondent who had gotten a scholarship offer and then documentation about what would happen if they switched to in-state tuition. 
Mm. And it actually reduced their scholarship offer. So it wasn't like they could save money by becoming an in-state student. (laughs) They were just like, no, we're going to give you, you know, you're an out-of-state student. We're going to give you $15,000. And if you come as an in-state student and your tuition is $10,000 cheaper, then we're going to reduce your scholarship by $10,000. Yeah, because those prices are all fictional anyway. So, (laughs) right. (laughs) Right. So they were pay. They were going to charge you. See, that's the thing. They're charging you your price. Yep. We don't care how we got there. You want to start at an in-state price or you want to start at an out-of-state well, price? It's this is what you're worth a, to us. It's such a ridiculous <laughs> lie, right? It's like when you buy a car or when you buy a house or whatever, and then there's just fees on top of fees on top of fees, and they're breaking it down with all these different itemized whatever. And it's like, listen, you don't. there's no reason that we have to do all this shit. All you're trying to do is make me feel good about the lower, like, here's the price mm-hmm. we settle on, we negotiate, like I'm paying $25,000 for this car, but then the actual check that you want me to write is $34,000. Yep. And like, that's part oh, of the negotiation some of that is too. taxes. Some of that is this and people, you know, they, they fall for it, but think about it. When you, when you get a demon subscription, we don't tack on taxes after that. <laughs> No, we don't. It's all included. It's all included. Yeah. That's well, the price. And even more insidious than that, you know, like I get it that if you go buy yourself, uh, um, you know, uh, a Coke at the Seven Eleven, you they might have to charge you sales tax on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the way they do it with like big purchases, including law school, is they have like I mean, they, I guess maybe law school doesn't have tax, does it? So. uh but when you're buying a car or when you're buying a house or whatever yeah. in the same documentation where they're showing you like the government taxes, which I understand are unavoidable, then they're also just layering in all these service fees and various different charges. And they're putting that on. It's like in the itemization with the taxes so that it's just like, well, you know, I mean, we can't avoid any of these. And meanwhile, it's like, no, what's that? What's that? $750. Yeah. What's that for again? Wait, that's not. I thought the price was this. What's that? Yeah. And very frequently, those prices can just get crossed off of the contract. This is why we need to continue our uh, fees project with the mm-hmm. schools. I'm glad uh, Jen is on that. And thank you, Kevin and Francesca, for your work that you've already done. Cool. You can be LSAT famous. Get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Please check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 370 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Um, Thanks, Allison Monahan, for coming on the show. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. 